Well, good morning. It's good to see you all this morning. It's a beautiful day, weather-wise. We have the enjoyment of, of uh, the weather. You guys are just going to make it tough for me to look right down here while I'm teaching. So if it looks like I'm always looking above, um, can blame the Brave family. All right. So, uh, but great day weather-wise. Boy, you couldn't ask for anything better than what we've got going on outside. And then on top of that, this being Easter Sunday, um, it just just makes it all the more special. So we're glad that you're here with us today. We're glad those are, that are joining us online are doing that. Let's go ahead and just kind of jump right into things. I'm going to mention the name of a town. And if I was a betting man, I would... Although I was proven wrong in the last service, um, I would bet nobody has been in this town uh, that's in this room. Fort Sumner, New Mexico. I had someone sitting on the front row right down here in the last service that was like, yeah, and I didn't get a chance to talk to him afterwards to find out why. We do have someone in the back over here. Okay. All right. So out of three services, a grand total of two people that uh, have been there. And that's really not surprising that there haven't been more people because Fort Sumner, New Mexico, is not the kind of town that draws in big crowds of people. Now, it's only 1,200 people in size, so it's a small town. Um, and unless you have a relative that lives there, you probably don't have a big draw for going there. But there is one other thing, one other thing that draws a few people, a few touristy type people to town. Let me show you a picture of it. On the edge of town, there is a cemetery. In the edge of that cemetery, there is a grave that gets a little bit of special attention. It's kind of an odd looking thing because you see it's got this steel cage that is around it, but let me give you a more close up of the actual headstone. The, all right, I am not working, there we go. Uh, the headstone actually shows that there are two guys that are buried here. They were good friends of one another. The one, though, that you have heard the name of is the one that's buried on the right. That is the grave spot of Billy the Kid. Okay, so this, this is the location, Fort Sumner, New Mexico, where Pat Garrett um, shot Billy the Kid. And if you're into Old West and stuff like that, these are names that ring bells to you. If you look at the headstone uh, that is on the screen, you'll see that all of the edges are rounded. That is not the way it was created. It was created like, you know, typical uh, grave markers with uh, right angle, sharp edges, and all this stuff. But what was happening is souvenir hunters were coming and chipping off pieces of this headstone uh, just so they could claim they were there. And so that explains this cage uh, with all the steel bars. It was not an attempt to ensure that Billy the Kid never got out of the grave, okay? <laughs> that was not what was behind this, but rather it was all about keeping tourists away from the grave so there wasn't any more damage done to the headstone. Well, today our minds don't go naturally to a small town in New Mexico. 
The only way that would be possible today is if some silly preacher tried to get you to think about a small town in New Mexico. But the reality is, on this day, our minds do go to a graveyard much further away and to a grave that probably looked something along these lines. We're talking about that grave that was occupied so many years ago, almost 2,000 years ago, but it was occupied only briefly. Uh, listen, you're not the only one today that is celebrating Easter. They tell us that based on the world's population and how many people you know, uh, claim an affiliation and all with Christianity and all that, that over 2 billion people in the world claim an affiliation or an association of some form with Christianity. Now, that's not to say that there are 2 billion people today that are celebrating the resurrection of Christ because some of those are only in name only or fringe, and so it probably isn't even entering their mind today. But you can pretty much rest assured that there are tens of millions, in fact, hundreds of millions of people that are celebrating the same thing that you are celebrating today. You can go to any time zone around the world, and there are many, many people that are celebrating this empty tomb. Let me read something about the empty tomb. I'll give you a little video you can watch that will ring a bell as well. This is coming from John chapter 20. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as, well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. What was it? What was it about this tomb, this empty tomb, nearly 2,000 years ago, that created a, such a reaction that was causing grown-ups to run? Mary Magdalene, uh, Peter and John. Now today, you know, that's not such a big thing, seeing grown-ups out running it. As a matter of fact, if you got up and ran a quick errand this morning or something, you probably saw people out running. Some of you that are in this room may have started the day that way and went out for a run this morning. I mean, that's kind of a thing that some people do nowadays. But that wasn't a thing back in those days. Grown-ups didn't go out just to run. There had to be a very good reason as to why they would. Now, kids, they do it all the time. They play. That's... Half the time, that's how they play. But, but with grown-ups, it's a little more unusual back in that day. So what was it that was, was causing them to run? 
You see, this empty tomb, it impacted the disciples in a major way. As a matter of fact, the book in the Bible that, that uh, talks about the history that played out for the next 30 years after the resurrection of Christ is a book with the title of the name Acts. It's the very next book after the gospel accounts. And in that book of 28 chapters, there are several sermons that are found there. And pretty much every single sermon references the resurrection of Christ. I mean, it, it was either the focal point or it was a main point of what the speaker was trying to communicate. All four gospel writers, they include some of the details, sometimes from slightly different perspectives, but all the same, they include details regarding this empty tomb on that Sunday morning when Peter and John ran to the tomb. 28 years later, Paul talked about this empty tomb. Let me read for you these verses in 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 1. Paul says this, Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, after that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. That's Paul's way of saying, check it out yourself. A lot of these people are still alive at the time that he was writing this. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. The resurrection of Jesus so radically impacted the lives of, of that generation, but also the generation that followed it and the generation that followed that and the generation that followed that. It was something that was radically impacting people's lives. Many of the graves that date back to that time that archaeologists have, have uh, studied have inscriptions and drawings depicting the resurrection of Christ. You go to, to Rome, and people that have studied the catacombs say that there are depiction after depiction found throughout the catacombs of the resurrection of Christ. Yeah, this was big news, but why? Why does Easter matter so much? Why is this empty tomb such a big deal? I'm not going to give you an exhaustive answer to that today, but I am going to get you started in answering that, in explaining four very good reasons why Easter matters. Number one, it proves that Christianity isn't just another world religion. We live in a day of religious pluralism. We live in a day of tolerance. You know, you got your head in the sand if you're not noticing that. I mean, it's going on big time. People get downright irritated if they hear someone that is making claims that one faith is legitimate, but other faiths aren't. You just can't do that. That's a foul. That's worse than a foul. Gandhi, who is gone 
Um, but his teachings probably have more of a following today than ever before. One of the things that Gandhi is quoted as saying is this, the soul of religion is one, but it is encased in a multitude of forms. And in a day of, of tolerance and religious pluralism, boy, those, those are words that people gobble up. You know, basically what Gandhi seemed to be saying here and, and, and part of what this whole, this whole basic um, belief is, is that no, it, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as what you're believing you're sincere about. And that's basically the thinking here. But if you break that down and you really take a closer look at it, you see that that clearly doesn't make sense. That does, doesn't add up. It'd be kind of like me at the end of this service, this being our third and final service today. It'd be like me um, going from here, jumping in my truck, driving up to KCI because I decided last second I wanted to go pay my sister a visit who lives in Colorado. And, uh, uh, and so I pull up to the very first terminal I come to. I jump out and I run in. And the first place I can buy a ticket, I buy a ticket and uh, to get on the next plane that's getting ready for takeoff. That's, you can still board. Fully confident I'm going to end up in Denver. The likelihood of that isn't very good. Oh, I'm sure there's going to be a plane in the next hour, hour and a half that is going to be going to Denver. But think of all the other planes. Think about those that are going to Seattle or Cleveland or going to Miami or Atlanta or going to Phoenix. I mean, you got all these other destinations. And to naively think, it doesn't matter what plane you get on because all planes end up in Denver. Just, it, it's not logical. It just does not make any sense. And in a similar fashion, to think it doesn't matter what kind of religious belief you have, just as long as you are sincere, that doesn't make any sense either. It, it Really, the sincerity is a good thing, but it's got to be based on truth. It's got to be based on truth. Christianity stands apart from all other world religions in a variety of ways. One way Christianity stands apart is that it relies entirely on the grace of God. All other religions seem to be focused in on what you must do. But Christianity, it's a matter of what has been done for you. And that's why grace plays such a huge role in the gospel message. It's, it's what the Lord has done for us that makes all the difference. It's not what you're going to do or what you have to do in order to be able to achieve salvation or heaven it's about what has been done for you. Another thing that causes Christianity to stand so much apart from the rest of world religions is that it involves God reaching out to us. All these other religions, it's about people reaching out to their God or gods, as the case might be. It's uh, all about an attempt being made from a human level to appease a God, to reach out to God. But that's not at the very core of what Christianity represents. It involves God reaching out to us. He is the one who initiates contact with us. Another thing about Christianity that makes it stand apart from the rest is that it focuses on a relationship, whereas other religions seem to focus so much on ritual or certain set 
rules or, or teachings or something along those lines. But with Christianity, the focus is on a person. And his name is Jesus. But ultimately, the resurrection is what makes Christianity entirely unique from any other religion. You can, you can study some of the teachings of Confucius. You can study Buddha or Muhammad or Joseph Smith or Charles Taz Russell or Mary Baker Eddy or, or any of a number of people who um, have been credited with starting a religious movement. But the thing is, when each one of them died, they were buried and their graves are still occupied today. Not so in Christianity. Jesus' grave stands empty. It was less than two months after the resurrection of Christ that Peter stood before a large crowd and said these words that are recorded in Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. And by the way, Peter wasn't in a remote place far away from where the supposed resurrection had happened. He was in the same place. He was in Jerusalem. And this is where the crucifixion and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus had happened. And so here it is just 50 days later, not even two months later. And as Peter's standing in front of a large crowd, he says these words. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Peter could say that and he could get by with saying that because it was a well-established fact that Jesus' grave was empty. No one in that crowd would, could refute what it was that Peter was saying. Now, had Jesus' body still been in a grave, people wouldn't have been sitting on their hands listening to him saying these words, but they would have jumped up and down and said, no way, that's not true. Let me show you. Follow me, we'll go to his grave. And they would have been, been able to have of proven to have shown, you know, whoever had enough interest to check it out for themselves, that Jesus in, indeed was still dead and in that grave. But, but it was a point that couldn't be refuted. It had been news that had spread around Jerusalem now for, for weeks that Jesus, having died and having been buried, did not stay buried, but he rose again. Yeah, this is part of what... Uh, sets Christianity apart from every other religion. Another reason why Easter matters is it proves that Jesus is who he claimed to be. There is anywhere from 35 to 40 specific miracles that are referenced in the gospel accounts. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In each of their gospel accounts, some of them repeat. Once in a while, one of them will tell about a particular miracle that the others didn't talk about. But you end up coming up with about three dozen 
miracles that you're at least given a little bit of detail regarding. Now, that's not even counting passages like Matthew chapter 4, verse 24, that as you read over that verse, you're going to see it is referencing who knows how many other miracles that had happened, whether someone was demon-possessed or they had a particular disease or they were paralyzed or they had leprosy or whatever the case was. And so you've got certain verses like this that are just kind of making blanket statements about numerous other miracles. But if we're just going to kind of, for the sake of driving home the point I'm going to drive home, just focus in on about three dozen of the miracles that Jesus performed that are recorded in the Gospels. The thing that we need to understand about these miracles is that these miracles were never intended to serve as an end in themselves. Yes, Jesus was moved by compassion. That's why Jesus reached out and he helped in these various situations. Okay, and so he did help alleviate some of the pressures and the pain and, and, and sadness that people were going through. But that was not an end in itself. Let me illustrate it by showing you this passage. Something Jesus said that's recorded in John chapter 14, verse 11. Jesus said, believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles themselves. This is Jesus' way of saying, hey, if you're not going to take my word for it, then at least look at the testimony of the miracles. I'm not just a teacher. I'm not just a rabbi. I'm not just a prophet. I'm not just a good moral man. I'm more than that. And that's what my miracles testify to. You see, they, they served a, a, a greater purpose than just helping people in whatever the struggle was they had at the time. And John, in John's gospel, after the resurrection of Jesus, after he tells that whole story I read earlier about the, the guys running to the tomb and all this, um, at the end of that chapter, John says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, the purpose of the miracles, and this, this in part even includes the resurrection itself, is so that we might have faith, that we might understand that Jesus is more than just a man. He indeed is who he was claiming to be. You see, his miracles had a way of causing people to sit up and notice. Rabbis back in that day, which were just basically Jewish teachers, rabbis, they were a dime a dozen. You know, not to take anything away from them, but they were all over the place. Jesus was more than a rabbi. Jesus was different. And his miracles testified loud, loudly and clearly about that. Even a first century Jewish historian by the name of Josephus, who I've got a book in my library that's about that thick of Josephus' writings. And, uh, and he, in that book, from a Jewish perspective, just talking about history during the first century, he references Jesus. Because how could you not reference Jesus? People were always talking about Jesus. And he specifically talks about Jesus' miracles, including the big one that he reportedly had risen from the dead. Yeah, 
Yeah, so this was a thing, and it was all about um, supporting uh, Jesus' claims. That he was more than just a man, a good moral teacher. Another reason why Easter matters is that it proves that God is in control. As you read over the final week of Jesus' life, you know, it wasn't all mountaintop stuff that was going on. I mean, there, there was some, you know, some valleys. There, there were some um, discouraging uh, things that were happening there as well. And so you can kind of look at that final week of Jesus' life and you can ask the question, well, who was in control during that week? And depending on who you're asking, you'll probably get a variety of answers. Some people might look at that and say, well, who was in control? The teachers of the law, they were the ones that were in control. Someone else might say it was the priests, the Jewish priests, they were in control. Someone else might, might chime in and say it was Pilate or, or the Roman authorities. They were the ones that were in control. And then, of course, you're going to have a few that are going to say, well, no, I think it was the devil. It was Satan that was in control during that final week. But you know, when it all shook out, it was pretty apparent who the last one standing was. And that was none other than Jesus. Yeah, Easter reminds us that God is in control. It's kind of like Proverbs chapter 16 says, we may make our plans, but God has the last word. God always has the last word. You know, there's a lot of stuff that people try to control in their lives. And, and if you're like me, you know, you've tried to control certain things in your life. And when we're young adults, sometimes we work under this mistaken notion that we can actually control people. We can control our children. We can control, you know, maybe even our spouse. You know, we, we have that thought, but usually it doesn't take very many years of parenting and marriage and all to realize, no, you can't. You don't have that kind of control. People think they have control of their health. People go to great length to exercise and to eat right and all of this, living in control of my health. And then unfortunately, oftentimes, some of those very people find themselves in a doctor's office and the news is being broke to them that they were hoping they would never hear when the C word is being used. You know, and then all of a sudden, the realization hits big time. I'm not in control of my health. Sometimes people think they're in control of a certain part or aspect of the economy or a, uh, certain events, and not world events necessarily, but regional events, and they've got that kind of a control, but the reality of the matter is, um, no. We control far less than what we realize. And, and this is where stress comes from. We're trying to control the uncontrollable. We're trying to manage the unmanageable. But in the middle of all of that, it is a comfort to be reminded that God is indeed in control. No matter how bleak the situation might seem to be, which following the crucifixion of Christ, the situation did look pretty bleak. You got to admit. But still, God was in control. And God's plans prevailed. It's kind of like Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21 says, people may plan all kinds of things, but the Lord's will is going to be done. And the Lord's will was in victory, not defeat, with Jesus going to the cross. Is that the victory was secured. So it does prove that God is in control. And then fourthly, and certainly 
not least, you know, last and least, but uh, significantly so. Easter matters because it proves that death doesn't have the last word. It doesn't. When they took Jesus down off of the cross and they put him in that tomb, like I said earlier, things did not look very good. His body was lifeless. They wrapped it kind of hurriedly because they were trying to do all this before the Passover, and, and they buried him. They, the stone was rolled in place. The stone was sealed. Things did not look very good. If you would have looked in the eyes of Jesus' disciples, his followers, those that loved him, you would have seen some major discouragement and despair because it looked like all of their hopes and dreams had been dashed. It was over with. Jesus had just breathed life into their spirit and, and they just saw the future as being so promising. But now here Jesus was dead and he was in a damp, cool tomb and now all of a sudden there was nothing but discouragement the religious leaders at this particular time must have been doing whatever the equivalent at the time was of giving each other high fives because they probably were thinking we finally once and for all have gotten Jesus out of our hair he's not going to be a thorn in our flesh or a burr in our saddle anymore yeah, the impressions of everything look pretty bleak. But that's where we need to remember appearances can be deceiving. Earlier, Jesus had stood outside of a grave and it was a friend of his that had died a few days earlier. His name was Lazarus. And before Jesus raised him back to life, Jesus said these words to one of Lazarus's sisters. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. Wow, those are words that they probably were real head scratchers for People, But then after he raised Lazarus to life, those were such hope-filled words. But then when Jesus died on the cross, I mean, you can kind of see, you know, people going back into that valley of, I guess it's not true after all. But then on that morning when they were hearing news about the tomb being empty, you can just imagine all these words rich in meaning flowing through their minds. The things that Jesus had been teaching them for years at the beginning of the second century, there was a Greek scholar who was, his name was Aristides. He was, he was writing a letter to an acquaintance of his, and part of what he was trying to do was he was trying to give an explanation as to why Christianity was spreading so rapidly. It hadn't been 100 years since Jesus' resurrection, but it was getting close. It was 90-some years later, and Christianity had, had gone well beyond Jerusalem and Israel and even beyond the Roman Empire, and it was spreading all through the known world. And so Aristides was trying to give a little bit of insight to his friend as to his opinion why it was catching on so quick. Here's what Aristides wrote. If any righteous man among the Christians passes from this world, they rejoice and offer thanks to God, and they escort his body with songs and thanksgiving as if he were setting out from one place to another nearby. You see, what Aristides, what he had, had uh, um, observed 
was that people had hope even in the context of death. That funerals were not doom and gloom and filled with just pure grief, but that there was hope involved even in the context of death. What seems to be the end, believers were convinced, isn't really the end. In fact, Jesus, in the very last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 1, he is standing kind of triumphantly, and these are the words that are coming from his mouth in verses 17 and 18. He says, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. That's basically uh, um, a picture of Jesus standing victorious. He had been crucified, he had been buried, but now he's alive, and look what he's holding, the keys of death and Hades. He's in control of death. He had conquered death. He was victorious. And that's how the last book of the Bible portrays Jesus. I read some of the opening verses in Paul's uh, 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians where he's talking about how the gospel message, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is a matter of first importance. Well, just a few verses later, Paul went on to say this. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And what he's teaching, and he makes similar statements to that, about three or four different verses there that are saying things um, akin to that. But what he's saying is, is that if the grave is still occupied, if Peter and John had never run to an empty tomb, and Mary Magdalene never because the tomb was not empty, and it was still occupied with the bones of Jesus, what Paul is saying, if that is the case, then all of us who claim to be Christians, who claim to have faith in Jesus, it's a waste of time because it doesn't do anything for you. When it all shakes out in the end, it doesn't do anything. We're still in our sins. Yeah, he had said early on in that chapter where he said Jesus died for our sins and that being part of, you know, the whole matter of first importance that Jesus died for our sins. But the reality of the matter is, what he's saying in this part of that chapter, is that if Jesus died and stayed dead, then his dying for our sins was a nice gesture on his part. But it was nothing more than that, because it didn't accomplish anything. Yeah, I mean, okay, so he cared enough to die for us, but then when he died, he stayed dead. And so the reality of the matter is, nothing has happened, nothing has changed with your sin. You still have your sin in your life, and you will still one day find yourself standing before a holy God, the creator of all, answering for your sins. A place that none of us want to one day be. And that's part of the good news of this whole message of first importance of uh, um, having faith in Christ, but, but if Jesus is still dead, yeah, appreciate you doing that for me, Lord, 
but you really didn't accomplish anything for me. That's what Paul is saying, if he's still dead. But that's the good news of this day, Easter Sunday, is that we're celebrating because there is a tomb that is empty. We're celebrating because Jesus is standing triumphantly holding the keys of death and Hades, that he is victorious. I want to close by telling a story that uh, Philip Yancey told in one of his books. This happened during the 1940s, during the tail end of World War II. He, he talks about a German prison camp and um, how unbeknownst to the German prison guards, the American prisoners had somehow managed to cobble together um, a makeshift radio. And so they were able to listen to some of the Allied broadcasts regarding the status of the war. But these German guards, they didn't know this because they kept the radio hidden and they only pulled it out when they had a lot of assurance that they weren't going to be discovered. And so for several weeks, they would every once in a while pull this radio out and they would listen to an Allied broadcast. And then eventually it got to the end of May 1945, and the broadcast communicated that the German high command had surrendered and that the war was over. However, the thing was that the German guards, um, they weren't aware of this. Because of the disarray that uh, Germany was in, uh, their military and everything, communication lines were experiencing major uh, breakdowns. And so the guards knew nothing about how, how a surrender had actually ended up happening. And, and so for a period of time of three days, the guards thought that the prisoners were stark raving mad because uh, they were acting so different. They were, they were waving at the guards and they were, they were singing songs. They were, they were laughing. They were laughing at uh, the German shepherd dogs for some reason. They, they were sharing jokes during mealtime. And the German uh, guards just couldn't understand what was going on with them. And that went on for about three days. But the guards would eventually find out. It was on the fourth day, word had finally gotten to the camp. And when the American prisoners woke up, they found that the Germans had all fled and all the gates were unlocked. The time of waiting had come to an end and the time of celebrating was in full force because of the victory. And the point that Philip Yancey is making, which, which is very relevant for us today as part of our parting words here uh, this morning, is that uh, we have that kind of an assurance. You know, there may be a lot of people in the middle of living life and they don't have the hope uh, of what is found in the gospel message found in this book. And so they, they don't really understand or they can't totally relate to how it is possible for believers in the middle of the peaks and the valleys of life, which all of us inevitably it's at one point in time or another in our life, we go through that. In fact, some of you right now might be in the middle of a valley or you may be in the middle of like the second or third valley in a row and you're wondering when is the next peak going to happen? 
in my life? Well, the thing is that as believers, when we have the big picture of knowing that the ultimate victory is found in Christ and he's already won that victory, though we are not reaping the full blessings and the benefits of that in the splendor of glory, we know it's coming. And we know we have that to look forward to. No matter how rough things might be here and now, we know on the horizon there is something incredible that's coming to meet us. And so that gives us hope in spite of whatever the struggle presently seems to be in our life. It gives us something to look forward to and to be upbeat in the middle of a context that most people be like, man, how can, you, how can you have a smile? How can you be upbeat right now with what's been happening in your life? But you see, that's where we're living our lives right now. And it's just a matter of time before in all of the fullness, the, the, that victory is going to be realized in a spectacular way. That is the hope of a Christian. And that explains why Easter matters so much. Because we have this to rest on. The victory has already been won. And we're assured a part of it because of our faith in Christ. And so we gather together in a setting like this for the purpose of celebrating. Now a person that, you know, isn't quite at that point yet and maybe doesn't have much of a grasp of the message of this book they might be scratching their head. And maybe that describes you today. Maybe you're here today and you're kind of still in that mode of kicking the tires. You're still investigating things. You haven't really been convinced one way or another. You just don't know enough yet. And so you're kind of at your own pace trying to figure out, okay, is this Christianity thing really a thing that I want to be a part of? And what I want to say to you today is you owe it to yourself. That you, you don't want to put that off very long in your life. Because it is a matter of first importance. More important than anything else in your life. More important than anything else that could possibly fill your calendar. That you need to get this settled in your life. And we would be more than happy with the opportunity of being able to sit down and talk with you and, and to be able to share what is the message here in this book, you know, and be able to tell how we get from here to the end of the story back here and be able to explain what the Bible is all about. You've got a connection card. You can indicate on that interest of talking to someone. You can pull one of the pastors aside. We'd be more than happy to talk to you further about this. It is a matter that matters. In the meantime, all those that are people of faith are going to celebrate, and for good reason. We're going to have our time of communion, and, and while a song is going to be sung in just a moment, um, I'm instructing you now that you can take your little communion cup that you got when you came in, and you can peel the top layer off, exposing the bread, and you'll be able to eat that, then peel the next layer off, and exposing the juice. And, and while you eat and while you drink that, you're mindful, reflecting on the body and the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice that he made on your behalf, a sacrifice that is in effect, because when he was buried, he didn't stay dead. 
And so it put a huge exclamation mark on what happened on the cross, that Jesus really did die a substitutionary death on our behalf to free us from our sin. Because when he was buried, he didn't stay dead. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning. I thank you for the gospel message, and I thank you for the people in our past that played a role in planting the seeds of faith and, and helping to expose us to the message of the Bible. And, and Lord, we're just grateful for those people, and we want to be those people to be able to pass it on to others. I pray, Lord, that uh, you would use us. doesn't matter um, whether we're male or female or what age we are. Or, none of that stuff really matters because each and every one of us have the capability and the opportunity to be able to take this all-important message and to share it in love with others who have yet to fully hear it. Father, use us in accomplishing that, in spreading this good news of celebration, the good news of the resurrection of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Yeah. 